Hi, my name is Anna Self, and you're listening to a public podcast. If you want more information about anything going on here at Public Church, visit our website, publicchurch.com. Thanks for listening. You guys can have a seat. Now, what an incredible morning so far. And we just want to keep this morning going by just acknowledging the fact that we all arrived here at the 930 gathering for different reasons. You know, perhaps some of you came here and you were bribed for lunch. Don't raise your hand if that was you. Threaten may be a better term because your mama said she's not feeding you unless you come with her. That may be why some of you are here. Others of you, you're here because you're simply curious. You, you figured out that churches make a big deal about Easter, and so you wanted to know, okay, what's all the fuss about when it comes to this Jesus guy? Others of you may be here because, quite simply, you're done. You've heard, feels like, hundreds of Easter talks in your life. You're over it. You're out of obligation, and you really just can't wait until it's over. There are definitely some of you who have been praying for this day for days, weeks, maybe even months, and you are so excited because of the person who's sitting beside you, who came with you, and you've just been praying that they would experience the Jesus that has been changing everything in you. And some of you guys are making a sacrifice for us because you're in the lobby. Can we just give it up for the lobby crew? Is that not awesome? Sliding in here. So wherever we're sitting and wherever we're here, we have a lot of differences, a lot of various reasons for coming. But the awesome thing about today is that despite those differences, our talk revolves around an experience that is common to all of us. And it's simply this, miscommunication. Miscommunication is something that affects all of us, and it creates tension. All right, let's just be honest. It creates arguments in our lives, doesn't it? Miscommunication creates arguments. So here's what miscommunication is, how we're defining it today. It is what you mean is not what is heard. Miscommunication happens when what you mean is not what is heard. And let's just get it out there and say that it's never our fault. We are always extremely clear with what we say. We speak with immense clarity. Wives, come on. If your husbands would just listen better, all of your arguments would just be solved, wouldn't they? Come on, husbands. Uh, never mind. I thought I'd have an example for husbands, but I realized you probably didn't want to get in a fight with your wife at the 930 gathering. So we'll just move on. But for all of us, you got a friend. If your friend would just put his or her phone down and listen to you, and like, come on, amen, then they would hear what you're trying to say. But the reality is miscommunication happens and, you know, it is our fault sometimes. But in our lives, we experience these moments where what we mean is not what is heard. Now, at times, it can be funny. And I have a couple examples for us just to kind of help us get into this. Now, according to the website I looked at, these first two examples were actually either printed in newspapers or posted in articles on the website. So here's the first one. Read it and just think about what you think it means. Some of you are laughing. Some of you should write this down and ask your friend at lunch. Children make nutritious snacks. What does that sound like? You're eating children, doesn't it? Here's what they meant to say. There are children that are like putting together nutritious snacks, you know, not that we should eat children. So, you know, sometimes what we mean is not what is heard. My, the next one is actually in honor of public worship and specifically Christy Edwards, our violin player. So here's the next one. And you're like, just take a minute. You guys will get this one. By the 5.30, they'll have it. Criminals, what, what is this saying? It's saying that criminal, like if we read it, like criminals would be spending time where? 
in a violin case. It was ridiculous. The author was trying to say that in a court case, a criminal was sentenced to nine months, and this court case just happened to revolve around a violin. Just trying to wake you guys up on Easter. Now, this next one. This next one is in the realm of marriage. If you're married, you know that miscommunication is just rampant all the time. Even the best marriages, we just know how to deal with it if we've got a semi-decent marriage. I mean, this happens in marriage, especially when the wife says something like this. We need some alone time. Now, ladies, when you say something like this, here's what you mean. Get away from me. Like, I'm trying not to leave you, but if you stay close to me, then I am going to leave you. Look, I'm trying to do what's right here, so you got to get away from me. Now, guys, we hear we need some alone time, and we're like, well, I mean, you know, I need some alone time. I'm just kidding. All right, we'll stop there because it's Easter. But here's the point. The point is that in all our relationships, especially marriage, Miscommunication happens. We mean one thing and someone hears something else. This is experience common to all of us. And it creates tension, especially in that one in your marriage, that definitely creates tension. But it creates tension and frustration and that's exactly what we're gonna see in our story today. We're gonna look at a scene in Jesus' life and Jesus says something and his followers are gonna interpret it to mean the exact opposite of what he meant. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, we're gonna be in John chapter 19. Now, as you are turning or clicking there, here's the backstory to this miscommunication. During Jesus's life, a a group of people left everything to follow him. 12 of these were men and they were called the disciples. They had the most access to Jesus. But there were other people that followed Jesus as well. There were other men and plenty of women who had a little bit less access to Jesus, but they still followed him around as well. And to follow Jesus, here's what that meant. It means they literally went wherever he went and did whatever he did, he said. They went wherever he went, they did whatever he said. So they made immense sacrifices to follow Jesus, but they also thought that they were gonna get some benefits. See, Jesus was popular in a whole lot of places. So they followed him, they were thinking, there's some future benefits here. One of those future benefits surrounded the fact that at this time, the Jews and Jesus and his crew, they were Jews, that the Jews were ruled by the Roman Empire. They were occupied by them. So a lot of his followers thought, all right, Jesus at some point is gonna overthrow Rome, he's gonna declare himself king, and he's gonna establish Israel as a world power. They thought this so much that there's stories where Jesus is kind of off to the side and they're arguing about their role in his future kingdom. Now they kind of understood, all right, Jesus, you're gonna be the king, we got that. But they were like, I wanna be the next slot. Like if you're the king, I wanna be right here and right here. And they're arguing about this stuff because they wanted the future benefits that they thought were coming with following Jesus. All this to say, they had a lot riding on Jesus's success. Think about it. They left a family business, careers, money, all to follow him, and so they needed to know that their sacrifice was worth it. And before we're critical of them for thinking about the end game, we do the same thing. When you're starting your career, you wanna work for this company because you see where it's going. If you're a coach, like I coach football Bradley, then you wanna be in this program so you can climb the ladder because this coach is successful. Like We all do this, we try to position ourselves in places to where we can serve people and also make sure that we have a future success for us. The problem for Jesus' followers is that Jesus seemed to go off script if he was gonna overthrow Rome and the benefits really began to be slipping through their fingers one night when he got arrested. 
To make matters worse, he not only got arrested, but he didn't even resist. Like, it seemed, and Jesus made it pretty clear that he wanted to get arrested. And so as his trial began, Peter, who was the leader of his disciples, he followed to listen in. And someone approached Peter and said, do you know Jesus? And, and Peter said no. He actually ended up denying Jesus three times. If, if you happen to be familiar with the story, we ride Peter hard. I mean, we give him, you know, we just run him up the mill and really criticize him because of the fact that he denied Jesus. But, but think about this. I think Peter's smart enough to realize that, all right, if they're arresting and trying to kill Jesus, and if I'm the leader of his followers, who are they coming after next? Me. So he's just trying to blend in with the crowd, be anonymous. I just want to kind of see what's happening and see if I need to hightail it and get out of town because if they kill Jesus, I'm probably next. He was just trying to save himself. I don't think we can blame him for that. And in just a matter of hours, Jesus' followers had dropped from the height of their popularity to the despair of watching Jesus be condemned to die. And just when they thought it couldn't get any worse, they saw him beaten to the point that they could barely even recognize him. They saw him raised up on a cross, a form of execution that the Romans had perfected. And here's what I mean by perfected. They had figured out how to maximize the pain so that the worst of the worst could be crucified through excruciating pain. You know, the thing is that we can read about the crucifixion. There are four different accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's good to do that. We can actually do some research as well about just crucifixion, how the Romans did that to try to understand what Jesus went through, and it's good to do that. We can watch movies like The Passion of the Christ and try to begin to form a mental image of what it may have been like, and that's good. All these are good things, but I don't think we could ever fully understand what it would have been like to literally watch the guy whom you'd left everything to follow die. Can you imagine what must have been racing through their heads? I mean, they had memories, memories of Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding thousands of people. They had memories of Jesus touching more blind people than they can even remember. They had memories of people that had never walked getting up to walk just because Jesus touched them. And this guy, this Jesus that has done all that, I mean, he's barely recognizable in excruciating pain, dying right in front of them, surely what they were seeing and what they remembered just didn't jive. And as their thoughts raced and they struggled to wrap their minds around what they were seeing, all of a sudden the voice of Jesus pierced through the air and broke their thought as he said, I thirst. Here's the full account of it in John chapter 19, verse 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. John is writing this. He, he was there. Like literally he's watching this unfold. He was one of the guys whose thoughts were just racing, trying to wrap his mind around it. When all of a sudden Jesus said, I thirst. And he's like, oh man, what's going on? And he gives us a little bit of detail. He wants us to know that Jesus was living out a plan because Jesus was finishing, accomplishing a plan, a plan that was actually talked about all throughout what we would call the Old Testament, what they would just call the scriptures, which is the first portion of the Bible. And I think that John recorded these two simple words of Jesus because he wanted us to remember the agony that he was in. I think it's easy for us to read through it quickly, to go through Easter and it quickly, and we, we forget that, no, he was in excruciating pain. 
He failed everything, including being thirsty. And because he was thirsty, in verse 29, it says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. You know, it's not that the sponge really had any significance. It's simply that the Roman soldier probably didn't want to let Jesus use his own cup. I mean, Jesus is being slided in every possible way. I'm not going to let this guy dying drink out of my cup. Here's just a sponge. Here, take this. And in verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the miscommunication. But for us to understand that, we need to do something that is really kind of hard for us. See, when we read this, we immediately begin drawing conclusions and thinking about what we think it meant and what we may have heard early on in our lives or somebody may have told us. But could we just step back for a moment? Could we try to remove all of our conclusions and try to imagine if we were John? If we were one of the men or women who'd followed Jesus and who were literally standing there hearing him say, it is finished. I mean, can you think about what they might have been interpreting? See, what Jesus meant was not at all what they heard. It's not Jesus's fault. It's simply they could not understand what Jesus was saying. They had left everything to follow him. Their future benefits were tied to his success. And then we hear these three words, it is finished. And they think, all right, all the good memories from the past three years, they're just that. They're memories. The hope of Jesus overthrowing Rome, finished. Miracles, <laughs> done. Perhaps they thought, hope dad takes me back in the family business. In a new life that I thought I had, a chance to really make a difference, all this is finished. And the next statement, I, I can't emphasize enough, and it's simply this, no one anticipated the resurrection. Nobody. When Jesus said these three words and died, nobody thought that he would ever live again. That's why they took these three words very literally. They thought, all right, just guys, just pack up our bags and head home. It is over. Do you feel the weight of their hopelessness? The disappointment? In their minds, this is the worst day of their lives, possibly the worst day they could even imagine. Can you relate to that? Have you had a worse day? A day that you're not sure it could ever get any worse than that day. Maybe it's the day that the people or person that you look up to turned out to not be who you thought he or she was. Maybe it's the day that your mom and dad sat you down at the kitchen table and said, our marriage is over. Maybe it's a diagnosis or some type of medical news, the type of news that we just don't ever want to get. Or students, it could be as simple as your parents saying, hey, we're moving. And everything you've known in middle school is just ripped out from under you. Our worst day can take on a lot of forms, but this hopeless, empty, what do I do now feeling? That's what Jesus' followers felt. Because again, no one anticipated the resurrection. There was no category for it. Don't take my word for it. Look with me in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, verse one, 
Here's what happens. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She's expecting to find Jesus there. The stone is missing. He's missing. Look what she does in verse two. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John who's writing this, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't find the empty tomb and go, he's alive, woo, we're waiting on this, let's go. She finds it and goes, who stole him? I gotta go get Peter and John. And notice when, when she comes to Peter and John, they don't go, Mary, oh my gosh, sit down, Mary, Mary. He told us he was gonna rise from the dead, don't you get it? No, they're like, they stole him? And they take off running. And they don't get it either. They're confused. No one anticipated a resurrection. But then Mary met the resurrected Jesus. Then Peter and John and the other disciples, they, they met him and he invited them to, to touch him. He actually ate. He's like, hey, give me some food so you can see I'm not a ghost. And over time, they actually realized that Jesus had risen from the dead, that the cross was not the end. In fact, they became so convinced that they actually gave their lives away to spreading this message. An example of this is Peter, the leader of the disciples, a guy who, when Jesus was on trial, denied even knowing him. And because Jesus rose from the dead and because he met the resurrected Jesus, Peter then stands up in the town that killed Jesus in front of people who killed Jesus. And he called him out. He said to a huge crowd, you killed Jesus. Where's his fear now? And yet he told him, he said, but Jesus loves even those of you who murdered him and you can follow him like me. That doesn't happen unless you've met a guy who was once dead and now rose again. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to pause and just acknowledge something when we're talking about miscommunication and how we interpret events, and it's simply this. Our experience creates a lens through which we interpret life. We all know this to be true. Our experience creates a lens through which we interpret life. It's as simple as this. If you grew up in a home with good parents, it's likely, not, not all the time, but it's likely that you're probably going to have a favorable view of marriage. Your parents actually liked each other. They seemed to get along. They didn't argue all the time. They stayed together. It's likely that you're going to have a pretty favorable view of marriage. If you grew up in a home where your parents hated each other, they got divorced, maybe they got remarried and then divorced again, and, and you just had this view of marriage that it wasn't permanent, it was violent, and it wasn't good, it's very likely that you're going to be pretty timid about getting into marriage, right? Our experiences create a lens through which we interpret life. And for the disciples, their experiences created a lens for them. See, when Jesus was dying on the cross and they felt hopeless, they interpreted his last words, it is finished, as meaning that all hope was gone. But, but when he rose from the dead, suddenly now the resurrection is a lens through which we interpret Jesus' words. This event that they didn't see coming became a lens through which they and we interpret Jesus' words. This means at some point, after he had risen from the dead, they had to think, maybe they had a conversation, maybe they just thought themselves, they'd be like, all right, so when he died and he said, it is finished, we thought he meant this, but now he's alive. 
So what did he actually mean? And they began to look back at those three words through the lens of the resurrection. So before we go any further, for those of you who are here and you do not follow Jesus, we're thrilled you're here, first of all. And I think this will help you. Hopefully this can be a help for you. Start with the resurrection. And let the resurrection be a lens through which you interpret the words of Jesus. Consider this. Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, and he pulled it off. I don't know about you, but most mornings, I can't even predict what time I'm going to get home at night. Anybody with me on that? Like, I predict it, and I'm usually off. This guy, Jesus, predicted his own death, resurrection, and pulled it off. That's worth paying attention to, isn't it? And look, you may be here and say, ah, you know, there's some stuff in the Bible that I just don't believe yet. You may say, I've got questions about God. All of us who follow Jesus have questions about God. But would you just start with the resurrection? Would you just let the resurrection be a lens through which you consider and interpret Jesus? Because that's what the disciples did. After he rose from the dead, they looked back through the lens of the resurrection and they began to think, okay, so he said it is finished. I thought I knew what he meant, but I think there was miscommunication. It definitely wasn't on his end. What did Jesus really mean? Here's what they wanted to know. It is finished. All right. What is finished? They were trying to figure out, all right, so Jesus did say it is finished. Well, what is finished? finished. So since the resurrection is our lens for how we interpret Jesus's words, we're actually going to go to Romans chapter six. So if you want to turn or click there, this is a passage that was written by a guy who followed Jesus after and because of the resurrection, a leader in the early church. His name was Paul, and he's going to help us understand what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. We're going to start in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, and here's what he says. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if you're a biology major, you actually like this verse, whether you realize it or not, because united with him is actually a biological term. Here's what it's talking about. It's basically talking about when you break a bone and the bone begins to fuse back together, begins to grow back together. This is what this phrase actually means. So it's saying that we have been united. We've been fused with the death of Jesus. We've been fused with the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what that means. The cross and the empty tomb have implications on our lives in 2018. They're not some distant event but we can experience the benefits of the cross now. Our present lives, our present experiences can be fused together, united with the death and the resurrection of Jesus now. So if that's the case, we really wanna know what he meant when he said it is finished. If, if whatever he did on the cross can affect the way we live now, then we wanna know what he did on the cross. So to help us understand that, look with verse six. Romans 6, 6. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's what that's saying. To make sure we're on the same page, it's saying we realize that our former behavior was crucified with Jesus so that sin may be powerless. Here's what this means. That we are no longer, and that phrase no longer actually means no longer and never again controlled by sin. 
We are no longer and never again controlled by sin. So the first question for us, what is finished? The first thing that's finished is that domination by sin is finished. Domination by sin is finished. And that is great news for us on this Easter Verse seven explains it even more. It says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you guys care if I go a little nerd on you? I got a little nerd in me and I can't hold it in on Easter. Are you guys okay if we do that? Because here's the nerd in me that comes out. The actual verb tense, the nerd in me is I love words. And the verb tense means everything. This phrase has been set free. It's a verb that means it's an action. And it's in the perfect tense. Here's the nerd, just hold on with me. If you don't like the nerd, we'll we'll come back in just a moment. If you like it, this is for you. So the perfect tense simply means this. A past action creates a present reality. The perfect tense means a past action creates a present reality. An event in the past is the lens through which we interpret and live and experience the present. Here's what that means. When Jesus died on the cross, that past event created the present reality of freedom from sin. That Jesus dying on the cross created a present reality that we can be free from sin, that domination from sin is finished. You know, when I think about domination, I think about athletics. I think about sporting events. I've been on both sides of it. Let me just say it's way more fun to be up 48 to nothing than to be down 48 to nothing. I'm just saying. I've been on both sides of this. But domination is when you can't do anything about it When you're on the other side of that 48 to nothing, it really doesn't matter what happens. I mean, I've been in football games where we're like, they've got their third string in and we still can't move the ball on them. It's like, this is really embarrassing. Can we just like get this over with, play three quarters, like let's roll on. Because you're being dominated, you're being controlled and no matter what you try, there's nothing you can do. Are you dominated by any sins? You know what it's like to be controlled, enslaved by a sin? Something that no matter how hard you try, you just can't overcome it. Maybe it's something in your mind like insecurity. No matter how hard you try, you just can't get those thoughts out. They just play in your mind. What do people think about me? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Do I measure up? Maybe it's addictions. You really don't want to get drunk again. You'd really rather not get high again, but yet there you are. And it just feels like it controls you. Maybe it's addictions in the sexual realm. You don't want to look at pornography again. You'd rather not sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend or people that you're not even dating again. But you find yourself doing that thing that you don't really want to do. And it seems like no matter how hard you try, there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe it's fear worry. You just can't shake it. See, we know the feeling of being dominated by sin, but Jesus told us on the cross with his last three words that our inability to overcome sin is finished. (laughs) Our inability to overcome sin is finished. Being dominated, being controlled by sin is finished. His death on the cross conquered the power of sin. If we have any doubts, he rose from the dead just to let us know that it's true. Now, if you walked in today and you're dominated by sin, I'm not saying that you're gonna walk out of here and never sin again. 
Learning to live in freedom is a process, and relapses are a part of that process, if we're just being honest. If any of us have walked that process, we know that. But we can have hope. Hope that Jesus sent us a message on the cross to know that we don't have to continue in this form of bondage and oppression to sin, but freedom is possible. Here's what Jesus wants us to understand. The sin that holds us down is stronger than you, but it's not stronger than him. The sin that holds us down is stronger, that holds me down is stronger than me, but it is not stronger than Jesus. And look, even if you don't follow Jesus and you're not interested in that, man, that's some great news to know that there is hope. And there's more. In verse eight, it goes on to say this. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's a reminder that back in verse five, we are fused together like a bone that's growing back together. We're fused with his death and we're fused with his resurrection. The other thing that's finished, what is finished is that separation from God is finished. Separation from God is finished. Verse nine goes on to explain that more. It says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Here's what that means. Jesus left the grave behind. <laughs> that Jesus left the grave behind. And what did the grave represent? hopelessness, sin winning, God losing, and Jesus left all the grave and all it represents behind. Because look with me at verse 10. It says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. He conquered sin, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That Jesus willingly chose to die. After he said, it is finished. The text says that he gave up, that he willingly surrendered his spirit. He willingly died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and he lives to God. And we think, okay, well, what does that mean? Look at verse 11. It says, so you also most, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That means that if we choose to follow Jesus, we live for God instead of for sin. So how does this connect? with their everyday lives? How does the fact that separation from God is finished connect with their everyday lives? It's simply this, sin separates us from God. See, God and sin are the opposite. So when we choose sin, we are choosing to reject God. So the more that we choose sin, the farther and farther away we get from God. We become dominated by sin, separated from God. And some of you are like, I don't really care. Why does it matter if I'm separated from God? Well, here's a question. Are you really living if you're controlled by something? Be honest with yourself. You don't have to admit this to anybody else, but just think about it. Are you really living if you're controlled by something? If we keep doing the thing that we don't wanna do, are we really alive? Is that the kind of life that we wanna live? And we just said that the sin that dominates us is stronger than us, but it's not stronger than Jesus. So the only way to really live, the only way to have freedom, the only way to overcome the things that we find ourselves doing that we wanna stop doing is through a relationship with God. See, separation from God is a problem for us. But here's the good news. It means that if Jesus left the grave behind, so will I. 
that if Jesus walked away from hopelessness, from sin winning and God losing, that we can do the same. And it goes back to Romans 6, 5, that we are fused together both with his death and with his resurrection. And it gets even better because in Romans 6, 10, that word life, it actually means a life that never ends. He died one death, but he now lives a life that never ends. And that's what he offers to us. See, instead of being separated from God, we can enter a relationship with Jesus where we will live forever with him. Look, I gotta be honest, I like it when the Easter bunny comes to my house because he brings me those Reese bunnies that have peanut butter in them. Anybody gonna eat one of those today? I'm really hoping I eat one today, I'm just being honest. If the Easter bunny's listening, I'm putting in my request. But that's really good stuff. And maybe he brings you Cadbury eggs or whatever he brings you, but here's the thing. No matter how good the Easter bunny is, there's some things he can't bring us. There's some things that we want that he just can't provide. Something like restoration. Don't we want the brokenness to go away? Even if it's slow, we'll deal with that. But we want our own brokenness and the brokenness in the lives of those we love. We want it to be removed. We want to see wholeness. Fill us fill our families, fill our communities. We want restoration. You know what else we want? We want justice. We want a world where inequality is erased. We want a world where diversity is celebrated, where everyone gets a fair chance. We want a world where poverty, material poverty, relational poverty, all of it is just gone. We want justice. And we can only find that justice. We can only find that restoration through a relationship with Jesus. And here's the thing that, about Jesus, is that Jesus is going to give us glimpses of that here, but then that will fully be realized when we go to heaven and live with him forever. And so the thing about it is that God can actually use us to provide glimpses of heaven on earth, he can use us to bring restoration in heaven, to bring restoration and justice to earth now, but he can only use us in that way if we let him begin to bring heaven into us. If we let him begin to restore the brokenness inside of us, if we let him begin to remove the injustice and the oppression inside of us, it starts with us. But Jesus on the cross told us the separation from God is finished. That restoration and that justice is possible. I mean, think about it. Think about this for just a moment. Can, can you imagine what it would be like to go one day, just one day, without doing that sin that controls you? Can you imagine the freedom to not be dominated by sin? Can you imagine what it would feel like to be able to step into a broken situation, to step in a situation of oppression and offer restoration or offer injustice because you are living that yourself? Jesus said it's possible. Not because of anything we've done, but because on the cross, he let us know that his work is finished. So how can we experience that? How can we be freed from the control of sin and how can we connect with God? I think if we were to ask John, I think if we were to ask his original followers, they would say, it's all about the first two words Jesus ever said to me. They would say, way back before the cross, before the resurrection, I was doing my thing and Jesus walked up to me and he said these two words. He said, follow me, follow me. That's how 
we experience the finished work of Jesus. What this means is that we surrender to him. We're willing to go wherever he wants us to. We're willing to do whatever he tells us. That we just give him control and we just follow him. And for those of you who came here and you've never made that initial decision to follow him, to surrender your life to him, there's not a magic prayer you could pray. It's not like if you get all the words right. It's all about the condition of your heart. But you could pray something like this. I'm gonna give you an example. Again, no magic, just an example. You could pray something like this. You could say, Jesus, I know that you came to earth and that you died for me. I know that everything that needs to be done was finished on the cross. And I know, Jesus, that you rose again. So would you forgive me of my sin? Would you free me from sin? Would you connect me with God? Would you teach me to follow you? And the beautiful thing about Jesus' invitation to follow him is that we can pray that prayer right now. We can pray it at any point in this gathering, or we can pray it anywhere we are. All we got to do is just be honest with him. So for the rest of this gathering, if that's something that you want to do, if you want to follow Jesus, just take time, no matter what's going on up here, and just pray. If you want to talk to somebody, I'm going to be at this particular exit sign. Our, our family's pastor, Colin, who led hosting, he'll be at that exit sign. And we would love to just talk with you. And now for those of us who follow Jesus, who already follow him, the question still is us, are we being dominated by sin? Are we living separated from God? And if so, what's causing that? Because Jesus told us on the cross that we don't have to live that way. So what step do we need to take so we are no longer being dominated by sin, but we can walk in the freedom that Jesus offers, so we are no longer being separated from God, but we can experience a closeness to God like we never have before. So I'm gonna pray for us that Jesus would just give us the courage to take whatever step he's asking us to take. Jesus, you're incredible. For people who don't know you, I pray that you would just help them to see how incredible you are. And I pray that somebody today would follow you. If not today, that this week, that at work, at home, they would be moved to just simply tell you that they surrender. And Jesus, I pray for those of us who already follow you, that you would give us the courage to take that next step, whatever that step is. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. You know, it's three words that change history. Three words that were originally misinterpreted. The disciples did not hear what Jesus meant. But these three words can be understood through the lens of the resurrection. So my prayer for us is that we would hear these three words just as Jesus meant them. That we would understand what he meant when he said, it is finished.